Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Jeff Greenfield, an award-winning television journalist and author focusing on politics, media, and culture. Over the course of his career, he served as a senior political correspondent for CBS, a senior analyst for CNN, and a political and media analyst for ABC News. He has also authored or co-authored 13 books and written for Time Magazine, The New York Times, The LA Times, National Lampoon, Harper's, Slate, and Politico, among others. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Nice to be here. So a couple things I want to talk about today. First is your op-ed in Politico about the quote-unquote GOP civil war and a little bit about the national political media. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your background. I didn't know until reading up on you that you started as a speechwriter for then-Senator Bobby Kennedy. I went out of law school, and they always hired one law school graduate to join as kind of a junior assistant or whatever you want to call it. And I was lucky enough to get that job. And even if you're Robert Kennedy, freshman senators are always understaffed. And it fell to me to start writing the less significant speeches. I'm at pains to tell people that, you know, he did not call me in as a 24-year-old and say, well, what should I do about Vietnam, Jeff? It wasn't quite like that. (laughs) But it was an extraordinary opportunity to work for an extraordinary man. And the fact is that politics had been in my blood since indecently early childhood. It hooked me at a very early age, and I never got unhooked. And so what was that? I mean, obviously, as an opening bid in politics in a political career, working for a Kennedy, but certainly RFK is certainly not a bad one. But how did you get hooked before then? I got hooked because I couldn't listen to a baseball game. I was staying with my mom at my grandfather's little cottage. And back then, there was no TV we had. We had a radio. And my mother said, you can't listen to the Yankee game today because there's a convention going on. and I want to listen to it. And it was a 1952 Republican convention, which was, as you know, a knockdown, drag out, Pier 6 brawl. I, I didn't know, obviously, what was going on, but I thought, wow, you know, it's the same thing that gets a kid like me to start pouring through old baseball or statistics. I just started finding the political world endlessly fascinating. And then as I got older, also realized it had some pretty consequential aspects to it. Sure. Well, in the 52 Republican convention, we should remind everyone, if you're not as steeped in convention history as Jeff and I are, that Eisenhower, in retrospect, is a towering figure in American military history and American political history, but had to go through a 12-round bout with Taft of Ohio to get that nomination. It was quite a spectacle. And you're quite right. You know, in retrospect, Eisenhower is a political giant, but he came very close to not getting that nomination. A week or so later, when the Democrats were convening, I said to my mom, first thing you do when you wake me up is tell me who got nominated. And, you know, I made it a point when I wasn't doing my homework in college to go into the library and read old back issues of Time and Life magazine to see what old conventions and elections were like. Well, certainly then, you know, from starting then in 52 as a not even 10 year old, I guess, to where we are now, 
you've seen all nature of conventions and probably is as good a source on the evolution of American politics globally and I would say from a partisan perspective as anyone. And so as you've come through these years, you know, you work for Kennedy, then you get into the media, obviously, long and storied career in the political media. What's been most striking to you? I mean, there's the obvious things we've seen in the last five or six years, but if you had to start from that moment that you walked into Senator Kennedy's office to where you sit now in your office, is there one takeaway you have, you know, in your time so far? Political tactics over substance. Remember, as far back as 1988, I hosted a conversation between veterans of the Nixon-Kennedy campaign and the Dukakis-Bush campaign. And the striking difference was how much more influence the political consultants had by 1988 than they had back in 1960. Back then, it really mattered to the Nixon and Kennedy campaigns. White papers were accurate. They would work very hard to make sure their policies could stand up to scrutiny. And now you have a situation to the present where a new congressman, I guess it's Dan Crenshaw, said that I work around comms, not legislation. There was a time when somebody went to Congress as a legislator and thought, I should spend some time thinking, you know, legislation, as opposed to what my next hit is on cable news. It's become performative, right? It's about what you say, what you do. The more outrageous, the better, to your point, right? That a Dan Crenshaw has, I mean, I don't know what committees he serves on, and he probably doesn't either. But the point is, is that can he put out a tweet? Can he use his official office to burnish his own image, whatever the case might be, as opposed to saying, okay, we have something that's really facing the country and let's get that done. I just ran across a story. Here's the background. It's 1956. The Congress is about to pass a law that takes federal power over natural gas. This is something that states want and the energy companies want. And then a Republican named Francis Case from South Dakota gets up and announces that he was the recipient of an unsolicited $2,500 campaign contribution from a lobbyist because the lobbyist liked his position on this bill. And it so riled Washington that Eisenhower, who was supporting the bill, vetoed it because he thought it had cast doubt on the integrity of the process. My point being, when you think, okay, that's what $2,500 back then did, and you look at the unbelievable amounts of money that have poured in, and what is really eye-opening and maybe encouraging was how much money the Democrats spent in places like South Carolina, in Maine, in Kansas, in trying to take over the state legislature in Texas, and it didn't work. Tells you, first of all, that the Democrats have a messaging problem or a policy problem rather than a tactical problem. But second, combined with the Supreme Court's view of this process, the idea that money is the mother's milk of politics, as Jesse Unruh once said, apparently is so powerful an idea that even when you look back at the last election, or for that matter, how much Hillary Clinton outspent Trump by in 2016, it never stops. It just doesn't stop. There is this kind of an impulse. If we just raise enough money, we can win everything. And as I say, it might be encouraging to learn that's not the case. You know, what I like to say, Jeff, is that money in politics buys you options. It doesn't buy you victory. And it certainly doesn't account for a bad campaign or a bad candidate but it can paper over a lot of those things when all of the other variables, district representation, et cetera, et cetera, are sort of held constant. You know, the people who raise the most money in Congress are typically the people who need it the least, but then they give it to the people who need it the most, and that's how people spend a lot of their days. Well, I'm just thinking of Amy McGrath in Kentucky, who, what did she spend against uh, McConnell? She spent tens of millions of dollars more, and I think he won by close to somewhere between 15 and 20 points. Well, and I think that also gets into sort of the donor psychology piece too, right? Which is people so badly want something that they're willing to overlook 
past results of either a state like Kentucky or a race or a candidate like McGrath to say, Mitch McConnell is so odious to me, I'll do whatever it is I think it takes because I don't want to say I didn't do enough. And I mean, I would also say not to make it a total campaign finance discussion, but the in politics, the incentives for spending are still really firmly rooted in like the 1980s and 1990s, which is how much cable and broadcast television can we buy that we can commission against as opposed to how can we create the best content that drives the most media coverage, which is ultimately still going to drive a needle more than, you know, a thousand gross rating points in Grand Rapids. And to take it out of this context, when you ask me what's most changed, I spent several years working for a political consultant named Dave Garth based in New York. And Dave was, uh, to put it mildly, a tough cookie. But one of the people on his staff was in effect an ombudswoman. And her job was to vet the commercials we were constructing. And if she didn't think that they could pass the smell test of a reasonable amount of accuracy, we wouldn't run the ad. And it wasn't nobility. We thought at the time, and this goes into one of the questions you raised, we were pretty sure that the media would be working very hard to catch either errors or distortions in our opponent's record. And we were careful not to cross what we thought was a line. And one of the things that has changed, Reed, I think this has really emerged in the age of Trump, is that there are large cohorts of voters who, when you inform them of certain facts, say, you're lying, it's all fake, or I don't care. Right. Or some combination therein. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I can tell you this, that in the ads we ran last year, you know, we want to make sure that everything we say is true because A, it should be, and B, because frankly, so many of the things we make ads about, all the information's there, right? It's just a matter of how you couch it. It's a matter of how you present it to voters, how you present it to the media, how you present it to social media that draws the attention to it. The underlying facts are there. But before we get to the national media, I want to talk about this piece that you wrote in Politico last month entitled, A GOP Civil War, Don't Bet on It. And so this is something that we have been talking about really since we launched in December 2019. But, you know, the thing that we've seen is that, you know, about two weeks ago, I don't know what the catalyst was. Maybe it was your piece. Maybe it was some, maybe it was the ouster of Liz Cheney. One of our people said, oh, you know, I've got all these people coming to me saying Trump is back. Trump is back. You know, he's still in charge. And we said he was never not in charge. That, you know, as you lay out in the piece, it's not just a matter of sitting there in Mar-a-Lago and having most of the Republican federal grandees, you know, come down and kiss the ring, but that he owns almost every state committee chair, every Republican committeeman, committee woman that make these decisions at the local level about how primaries work, how maybe his primary might work in 2024. And you said Democrats don't believe it. And this is something we've been trying to tell our friends on the Democratic side. You know, if we were in Congress, we would caucus with the Democrats is this is a problem. It's a growing problem. There is no rift in the Republican Party. And such as it is, it is not among rank and file voters. It is among people like Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump who are really just fighting over money and power. So give us a sense of what you see on this front. Again, this was about three weeks ago. But since the ouster of Liz Cheney, how do you see the Republican Party? I think it's Trump's party. I think Donald Trump Jr. was right. And I think a lot of this is wish was father to the thought. I mean, a lot of us are quite aware of Fox News as a kind of state media, but you look at CNN and MSNBC and, you know, the only Republicans they have on are people like Michael Steele, who, as far as I know, last voted for a Republican. I don't know, maybe he voted for Mitt Romney or formers. You know, there's a former Senator Jeff Flake and there's a former Congressman Mark Sanford. To me, I think this goes back a long ways among certain members of the media that they're always looking for the 
recalcitrant Republican who's going to demonstrate this huge rift in the party. It goes all the way back to Reagan, when a lot of media people couldn't believe that he would get the lion's share of a Republican vote as opposed to more moderates. But if they couldn't believe that about Reagan, you know, for Trump, first of all, the idea that he could be a serious candidate, that he could survive Access Hollywood, that he could survive the Comey report, whatever it was, there's a constant belief that, you know, he's on the verge of extinction. And this extended to the campaign when, from my perspective, 2020 was a very bad year for Democrats. They won the presidency by the skin of their teeth, you know, 42,000 votes in three states, and the thing goes into the House. They came within a quarter of a percentage point in Georgia, David Perdue did, of avoiding a runoff, which would have meant the Senate would have stayed in Republican hands. And you know what happened at the congressional and state legislative level, in spite of all that, it was a disaster. So that's the first part, I think, of the kind of delusion that a lot of the non-conservative media are in. And the second one, the idea of the civil war, the battle for the soul of the party, you put your finger on it. I went and looked at state legislatures and state Republican parties. You look at parties that once defined moderate Republicanism, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and they're all, you know, 100% behind Trump and censoring the Republicans who voted against him. So where is this rift? There are a couple of things you, you hit on there that I think that we really worry about. The first is this sense of history that you look back on things that, well, it couldn't happen. This can't possibly happen. And you could make an argument, Jeff, and I will posit an argument to you that, you know, perhaps was Ronald Reagan seen as extreme in his time in 1979, 1980, maybe as Donald Trump was in his time? He was by a number of people, but he'd been the governor of the most populous state in the nation for eight years, having won two, one landslide and one near landslide victory and came as close as anyone to deposing the, the sitting president of the United States in his own party. I think there was a kind of arrogance. He's an actor. He's another Goldwater. And there was a failure to understand not just his political appeal. This was whatever you think of his politics. And I was no fan in a general sense, but this was a serious guy. The contrast between Reagan and Trump is, let me coin a phrase for you, night, day. I wrote very early on that I think there's a part of American politics where every so often voters decide to do something really weird. You tell them, oh, yeah, you can recall the governor of California and put in an actor. We'll do it. We can elect a wrestler as governor of Minnesota. Yeah, we could do that. And I think that was part of Trump's appeal that some in the media didn't get and some still don't. They're still waiting, I think, for this massive Aaron Sorkin event at the end of a campaign where the masses rise up and say, get thee out. You are a bane on our existence. And it didn't happen. And, you know, there have been thousands of books and 400,000 interviews at diners in the Midwest to try to explain this. But I think since they believe that Trump was impossible of election, the idea that the Republican Party as an institution is essentially solidly behind him, and not only behind him, but is now at the state level, eagerly putting in restrictions on voting, which all stem from Trump's argument that the election was stolen. That's right. And that was the other part on history I wanted to ask you about, which is Steve Schmidt, who's one of our co-founders and, and often guest on this podcast, said, He's not sure how much of a future a democratic republic has if it has no memory of itself. And I'd like to get your sense of what you think about that. Well, I think, you know, before Steve Schmidt, there was George Orwell. One of the themes of 1984 is who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past. When you look at the response to January 6th, that's classic. 
there was a spasmatic sort of two to four hours when even some loyal Trump Republicans were going, oh, that's not so good. And now it's either they were tourists, they were Antifa, it never happened. And it also gets to the point of when the media finally began to cover Trump, and they they have a lot to answer for in history for how they dealt with him early. But one of the things that you kind of take into the process is if the media does their job, then wrongdoing and malfeasance will be exposed and the public will reject that person. Well, what happens when, you know, the media finally does its job and says, look, here's what this guy's about. And large swaths of the public, including most of the Republican Party, said, no, fake news, never happened. But they are willing to embrace the idea that the Democrats are satanic pedophiles. Well, right. <laughs> yes, exactly. As of an interview I did yesterday, I think it's 15% of the country believes this, which is pretty shocking in and of itself. Well, maybe it shouldn't be. But that's the, the other part, too. And I want to segue to our third piece, which is about the media in particular, which is what you talked about in 2015, 2016, something I was certainly guilty of, which was this lack of imagination. You know, it can't happen here. This guy can't possibly win. And now what we see, I think, is that this lack of imagination has returned. It's this idea that the system, and I'll call the inside the beltway sort of crucible or whatever you want to call it, ecosystem, desperately wants to return to the mean, but events won't allow it. But that does not change the prism by which some of your colleagues, maybe even many of your colleagues view the world, and maybe even many Democrats view the world. Right after the certification, I wrote, okay, we made it through this time, but what's lying ahead? And I did lay out a scenario, having learned where the power switches are, that the Republicans were going to change how the votes were counted, make sure that dissenting secretaries of state and local and county and state election officials were replaced, and increase the power of state legislatures to be the ultimate arbiters. And, you know, that one is happening just day after day. And I think when you add to that the strong possibility, if not probability, that the Republicans will have one, if not both houses of Congress, then what is in place at every level is the capacity for a Trump or a Trump-like figure to be put in the presidency, no matter what happens with the electoral vote, no matter what really happens with the popular vote, although that, the Republicans have given up on that. An interesting point, by the way, Reed. I did not think it would be around to see the time when one of the two major political parties not only could not win the popular vote, but didn't care. Right. But when you talk about the 42,000 votes, this is where what we like to say, it really does, Jeff, come down to the idea of the small numbers, which is in Georgia or Florida or Iowa or what Texas they tried to do and the Dems blocked them by not allowing a quorum, they don't have to prevent every black voter or every Latino voter from participating. It's just enough to make sure it's either too close to call, which then, of course, throws into all this other stuff with secretaries of state and certifying elections, or we got our three or four percent margin and, you know, we're good to go. And so, I mean, I think it's not just a matter of they don't care about the popular vote, but they're significantly attempting to restrict the franchise. That's part of what I think, you know, I've seen this notion that look how weak Trump was. He lost the presidency, the House and the Senate. And as we po I pointed out to you, he came perilously close to winning the presidency. The Senate came down to a tiny handful of votes, and the Democrats lost, what, a dozen House seats? Biden said their effective margin now is four, and the average loss in the midterms for the president's party is around 25 or something. So I think, in fact, that this notion that you know Trump is unpopular and that he will fade, I do concede the point that if he's criminally indicted, that will be a problem. But James Michael Curley won as a mayor of Boston while he was in prison. 
Well, I mean, you know, Marion Barry, you know, mayor of Washington, mayor for life. This is not an unusual thing. Let me ask you, though, I mean, on the Georgia front, you know, especially those two Senate runoffs on January 5th, we were talking about that as guys who have run a lot of campaigns, been on a lot of campaigns. You know, you run those campaigns 100 times, maybe 10 percent of the time you get the outcome we got. It's just that close. And it's Georgia. It's not New York State. It's not Connecticut. It's not New Jersey. It's Georgia. You can make an argument that there's a migration of more moderate, upper-income white voters moving into the suburbs there. But I think that's something that probably political scientists will have to tell us. You know, that's probably going to be a little bit down the road. But, I mean, Jeff, the other part, too, is I had this theory, and I hope it never comes true. The Democrats in Congress were talking about expanding the Supreme Court. And this is where I think losing elections for Democrats really becomes problematic, and for the country even more so, is that let's say they increase by two the number of seats on the Supreme Court. Someone sues. It goes to the district court. It goes to the appellate court. It goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says on a six to three margin, no, you cannot increase the size of the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, I'm just writing about this just before I hooked on to you guys. I'm, the next column I'm writing deals in part with this. First of all, the proposal, and this is, shows you how transactional it is, is to increase the court by four seats, which by some coincidence would make it a seven to six liberal majority. It's a terrible idea because what happens when the Republicans take up? We're going to wind up with a 50-person Supreme Court? The way I described it in the political piece was for the Democrats, you know the old kids game of Candyland or shoots and ladders? Well, as the Democrats approach what they want to do, everything is a shoot. There are no ladders. The only ladder that they have is somehow begin winning votes that they cease to win. You know, one of the things about what happened in Georgia in November was that it turned out that just enough voters in the non-blue counties, in the more rural, less educated, it's just enough voters went to Biden, combined with a decent but not enormous turnout among blacks and college educators to give him that state. And what it means for me is what people constantly keep forgetting about elections is how often they come down to really marginal, small tiny shifts. And I think this is one thing as we look forward to 2022 also is that, as you know, even at the presidential level, by world standards, our voter turnout is abysmal, even more so in midterm elections, which means it's going to be those voters who are most partisan, most fired up, probably most believe that this election is as consequential as anyone we've had. It's existential that are going to show up from what our perspective is. We called it the Bannon line, right? Because he actually helped us define it for us. He said, if these guys get four to eight percent of Republican voters to move across to Biden, we're going to be in a lot of trouble or to the Democrat at the time. We're going to be in a lot of trouble. Like that's what we see politically and electorally is how do we get those people who went to Biden to you know, stay on their island for now and not come back? Because this is my concern is that the Democrats don't understand, unfortunately, what's at stake. And it is not environmental policy here or policy B over there. It's that, you know, there is democracy on the ballot and stuck inside this sort of cloistered world of the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, that stuff can get really hard to see. Let me ask you or put a tough question to you, okay? Because you guys raised a ton of money in 2020. In terms of affecting the down-ballot votes, I don't think anything the Democrats did made much of a difference. I agree. Okay. So if you go out and beat the Bushes and say, you got to send us a ton of money for 2022, do you think you know what to say to the voters that might be persuaded to 
not vote Republican next time? I and mean, do you think you know, have you unlocked that problem that Democrats have in increasingly in a lot of states that they used to have senators and congressmen from? Well, I mean, I would say in an individual congressional district, probably not, because I don't know the parameters of that. But I will say this is that we believe it is essential. And this is why I think the idea that the 1-6 commission died on the vine is such a tragedy and travesty is because I do believe, I think we as an organization believe that that needs to stay front and center. We must keep that in Republicans' faces. We must keep them defending that or refusing to discuss it because that pushes them further and further and further outside the mainstream, not for the people who are dyed in the wool, but for the people who are otherwise reasonable human beings, admittedly less and less of those every day. And then we will go out and we will find what we believe to be the most conviction-based message that is effective in a given state or a given race. I mean, look, last year we did no polling. We did no focus groups. We thought, okay, this is an issue that's going to hit Trump hard, or this is an issue that we want to cut Trump off from making against Biden. And that's where we went, right? It was all based on what we thought was going to be most effective to either amplify a narrative that was troubling to Trump or create a narrative that would be troubling to Trump. But I will say this, we spent $12 million on Senate races and lost, I think, all but Arizona. And so you know, look, I think you're absolutely right. There was a significant undervote for Trump last year. Every so often, I think a lot of people who used to work in politics and then took the veil of purity, as I did, put themselves in the position, how would you think about this? And in part, I was influenced by a book by Sasha Eisenberg called The Victory Lab, in which he comes down very hard about traditional political consultants and what they spend money on. And it occurred to me that if I were part of the, that operation, I would bring in people who had never done political campaigns just to get their advice. I would call them the guys who do the Geico commercials because they have a kind of offbeat notion about how you address people that regular political consultants just don't have. Now, maybe their advice wouldn't be any good. Maybe you wouldn't give them any money. But I would look for people, and certainly this is true about digital ads and influencers, figure out the ways people are getting information that are totally different from the kind of ads that, you know, I used to write, <laughs> you may still do, because there's something missing here. If you have all the money in the world and you lose a race by 20 points, something's not right. Or maybe you just shouldn't have run the race in the first place. Maybe you need to put your resources elsewhere. But I absolutely believe that there are ways that people are getting information and absorbing information that are so out of the ballpark, so out of the world that, say, that I grew up in and worked in that that may be required. It may be required that you say, you know what, I'm going to find the right person to make these arguments or make these appeals. Well, look, I mean, I think that this is one thing that I think that you see the Republicans. And when I speak about Republicans, Jeff, I talk about the entire ecosystem. There's the party slash political piece and the candidates and the politicians. There's the Fox and the Owen and there's the financiers like, you know, Steve Schwartzman and Charles Schwab and those people. There's the Hollies and the Cruises who carry the water, and then there's the folks, the rank and file. But they fight in the culture. They fight in the culture, and they have at least an even money bet that the culture fight will have a positive electoral outcome. And so I absolutely agree with you that finding ways to communicate with people. Look, I mean, for us, what we saw was sometimes we drove anger, sometimes we drove sadness, sometimes we drove laughter, but it was all based in emotion. Because if I spend a million dollars on a poll, Jeff, and I get six messages that I find are above 65%, you know, when somebody spent 32 minutes on the phone with a pollster, who's also, by the way, self-selected then. And then I run that ad 500 times in St. Louis. Is anybody going to really change? I doubt it, probably. 
Here's a piece that I read some months ago and asked a guy to find it for me. Peter Hamby worked at CNN. Then he's the political director of Snapchat, believe it or not, but he also writes for Vanity Fair. And he did a piece based on a bunch of focus groups that John Favreau, I think it was, or one of the old Obama speechwriters, did a series of focus groups. And basically what he discovered was that most regular people, their disconnection with the kind of political conversations that you and I have is unbelievably greater than even you might have thought. The whole world is so irrelevant. And this was, by the way, before the pandemic. So that, you know, the kind of things is your democracy is at stake. You know, maybe that argument will work with a, I don't know how many people, but for a lot of people, I don't think most people give a rat's buttocks about what's going on with the attempt of the Republican Party to basically wire the next election so that they will win no matter what the voters do. I take that very seriously. I'm not normally an alarmist, but this is a big deal. But the question is, does anybody know how to make it a big deal for a reasonable number of voters who are not otherwise kind of committed to the political process? I don't know. Well, look, I mean, certainly I think we feel the same thing. And we spend a lot of time all day, every day thinking about that specific thing. And I try to admonish my very smart partners that, you know, we come up with some very interesting things and we can do a 10 minute riff on America and the history of the world better than anybody. But if we can't convince that guy on his couch and, you know, Buckhead in suburban Atlanta to mail in his vote or go to the polling place next November, then it really doesn't matter. It's just art. And so I think you're absolutely right. There's never been more inputs into Americans and specifically into American voters that are less effective and efficient or believed than probably we've ever had. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeff, I want to first and foremost, thank you for joining us today. Where can our listeners find you online? Well, I write irregularly for Politico and I appear irregularly on PBS NewsHour Weekend. And if they go to at Greenfield 64, they will find me on Twitter, where when I'm not yelling at the New York Yankees, I'm opining about politics. Well, and as everyone knows, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. I hope you'll come back as we get later into this year and into next year and share your insights with us. Till then, I just want to thank everyone for listening, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.